0: It's an average day at Robert Courtney's office in Kansas City, Missouri. He's in a small, meticulously designed back room, surrounded by IV racks, ventilators, and recliners, carefully mixing chemotherapy drug compounds to be delivered to doctors' offices. Courtney isn't just a regular pharmacist, though. He's a big businessman around town, owns a couple independent pharmacies, but his biggest and primary one is Research Medical Tower Pharmacy. It's where he had his first job out of college And then he bought it from his boss in the late 70s when he was only 34.
1: He dressed immaculately. He gave money like he was giving a million dollars to his church.
0: Courtney was the kind of guy that would give people a pass when they couldn't afford to pay. Or when some of his customers had to switch pharmacies due to insurance policies, he talked to the companies directly and make it work. He went the extra mile for his clients. He also went that extra mile for his business.
1: He was always interacting with other pharmacists and different groups talking about how innovative he is because not many pharmacies would be preparing cancer chemo IVs because it does take a lot of equipment and you have to set it aside, but it was very profitable.
0: It's pretty common now, but when Courtney took this on, few people wanted to physically handle chemotherapy drugs, but he was happy to purchase the extra equipment, learn the techniques and mixed the drugs in-house, delivering them to doctors, saving them time.
2: He was the epitome of of what you thought a decent pharmacist was.
0: That is, until something happened at Courtney's pharmacy that shocked the people of Kansas City, Missouri. The news broke, and when people opened their Sunday papers to see this front-page story about this pharmacist, just unimaginable horror. And quickly... Everyone realized that Robert Courtney was not who he seemed. Inside, he was an evil, vicious human being. A monster in a lab coat. I'm Alzo Slade, and from something else, this is Cheap, The show where we ask the question, is it ever okay to break the rules? This week, The Monster in the Lab Coat. How a Kansas City pharmacist committed an unthinkable crime against his community. When was the last time you all went and saw your pharmacist? i go every once in a while, you know, get a little cold, a fever, ask them a couple of questions for advice. You know, pharmacy is one of those professions that it gets a lot of love from people. It's like good doctors and teachers. They're invested in people's wellness and their friendly face when you're sometimes at your lowest. And they provide little tiny solutions that make us feel better, hopefully. And our communities rely on them. Kansas City is no different. My
2: name's Michael Ketchmark, and I'm a trial attorney in Kansas City, Missouri.
0: Michael's office is on a small street off the intersection of two main roads, along with other businesses. Financial services, Realtors Association, they're all next to the country club where people from all those offices like to golf. And Michael, he specializes in an area of law that's all about cheats, specifically big conglomerate type cheats trying to take advantage of the little guy. I do a lot of really tragic
2: cases where where people go to work and then because companies are cutting cutting
0: rules or cutting corners, they end up dying or becoming seriously injured. It was mid-summer 2001 when he was approached by a client with that kind of story. But this time, it included a familiar name. That pharmacist Robert Courtney. He lived a relatively upper middle class life. He lived in northern Kansas City in a pretty upscale neighborhood. He had two children from his first marriage, got married two more times, and now he has five children total. Courtney had houses and they were big, his cars nice. Altogether, he had the trappings and ambitions of an upper middle class family man. He was a respected and relatively quiet figure in the Kansas City community. He was a pillar of the community. He's not somebody who I knew, but he was a very active
2: deacon in a very extremely evangelical church, donated a lot of money to the church.
0: Pillar of the community, active in church, gave money to good causes. This is the kind of guy that would make a decent neighbor. Since most people saw him as the super nice guy, it was a little bizarre when this client of Mike's came along with suspicions about Robert Courtney.
2: I'd had a client who I'd represented years back, and his wife had passed away. His wife was diagnosed with cancer. She went in to get
0: treatment. It would have been something that would have been curable. But sadly, it wasn't cured. She passed away. And her widower, Mike's client, suspected that there was foul play at hand. Something other than a natural biological cause. Something that involved Robert Courtney. And Mike was initially shocked. He had to be wrong. There's no way that a pharmacist would do this to somebody. Mike's got a point. A pharmacist? No. They wouldn't have put his wife's life at risk, not on purpose at least. Mike couldn't believe it.
2: I was dealing with somebody who was having a tremendously hard time dealing with the grief of a wife of 40 years and and that he just somehow was wrong. It just, um, it didn't make any sense to me.
0: But as it turned out, the FBI was conducting an investigation and it reached out to Mike's client. So when Mike realized the FBI was involved, he decided to give them a call to see if there was any truth to what his client was saying.
2: And it took me about five minutes to pick up the phone and call the FBI agent who he was working with to suddenly realize that, that no, this
0: is, a, this is really happening. After the break, Mike's world gets flipped upside down. It's the late 90s, and rookie FBI agent Melissa Osborne has just been posted in the Kansas City field office.
1: I moved myself from Atlanta, Georgia, to Kansas City, Missouri, and began my career as a special agent with the FBI in the Kansas City field office.
0: It was at Mel's first posting where her boss told her about a strange case.
1: When I first learned of this potential case, I didn't know a name. It was the summer of 2001, early summer, and I was in a car with my boss.
0: It wasn't just by chance that this particular case had been assigned to Mel. Yeah, the report had been made by a Kansas City resident, and Kansas was where Mel was stationed. But the real reason she'd been picked out was because of her background as an actual pharmacist.
1: I graduated in 1991 with a doctor of pharmacy from Mercer University in Atlanta, Georgia. And I worked in various pharmacies
0: And Mel's boss knew that an agent with a pharmaceutical background would be very useful with this next case.
1: And she says to me, she goes, I want to let you know, I got a call from a former U.S. attorney, and this doctor claims that there is a pharmacist in Kansas City who is diluting cancer drugs.
0: This news was much more than Mel could take.
1: When she told me this, it basically felt like someone had kicked me in the stomach.
0: She also wasn't really sure what to make of it.
1: I did leave pharmacy for the FBI, but I was very proud of being a pharmacist. But then I started thinking about it. I was like, "Yeah, there's no way a pharmacist would actually intentionally do this to patients. It had to be a horrible accident or a mistake on somebody's part. I, you know, at that point, I probably leaned more towards there's not a crime here.
0: Pharmacy is one of those professions like a pilot, doctor, surgeon, where you can't make mistakes. When you do, somebody is worse off for it, like dead worse off. When Mel first heard this story, she had no forensics, no witness statements, nothing. Just the unbelievable story of some pharmacist diluting medication.
1: We didn't know anything. We didn't know the name of the doctor, the name of the pharmacist, pharmacy. We didn't know anything, just that there was this potential crime.
0: That all changed a few weeks later when Mel was introduced to the witness who first made the reports an oncologist by the name of Dr. Verda Hunter.
1: I was actually in Quantico, Virginia, for an undercover operation meeting with the other FBI special agents. And I got a call from my boss, and she said, you need to get back to Kansas City. We're going to meet with this doctor, and we're going to find out you know, who this pharmacist is and get information on it.
0: Mel wrapped her undercover operation and made her way to Kansas City.
1: What I remember from that is going up and introducing myself and shaking her hand is how devastated she looked. She looked like, you know, you could tell that this was something that was weighing heavy on her.
0: Melissa and the other FBI agents sat down with the doctor and started listening to her story.
1: She told us that she had an agreement with a pharmacy that was also in that building and it was called Research Medical Tower Pharmacy. And the owner of that was a Robert Courtney.
0: Dr. Hunter had been placing orders with Courtney for a while. And he delivered the chemotherapy drug she needed for her patients mixed by him.
1: She told us that back in May of 2001, there was a drug representative from Eli Lilly who did what they call a lunch and learn with nursing staff.
0: Eli Lilly is a big pharmaceutical company. And so one of their sales reps was coming by the hospital.
1: His name was Daryl Ashley and he made a comment after the meeting to one of the nurses that, you know, are you using a lot of Jimzar? And he made a comment to her that it just doesn't seem like there's enough of this product being sold in this general area.
0: So this part of Dr. Hunter's story needs a bit of unpacking to understand why the sales rep, Daryl Ashley's comments were so important. First thing, GEMZAR is a chemotherapy drug used to treat certain types of cancer. The next thing you need to know is... There's a computer program that tracks the amount of drugs that a pharmacy purchases from a different wholesaler.
2: And that's what the drug
0: rep was being paid on. There are a whole lot of pharmaceutical companies out there selling similar drugs for treatments. So reps are always trying to see where they're selling and where they need to up their sales. They visit hospitals and ingratiate themselves with the folks who have the power to buy their product. They know other companies are doing the same. So yeah, health is a concern, but with competition and capitalism, it can easily take a back seat to the almighty dollar. These sales reps will, will do is see, you know, are the doctors in the area prescribing more
2: of one or the other then, then they'll focus on trying to increase their sales. Those numbers that were being used to pay the drug reps' bonuses were lower than what
0: the doctors were telling him that they were prescribing. There was a discrepancy in the numbers. Daryl, the drug rep, saw that the doctors were buying more chemo medication from Courtney's pharmacy than Courtney was purchasing from him. He suspected Courtney was getting his supply from somewhere else. And as a sales rep, when the math of your sales is funny, it affects the money and you can't have that. His offhand comment about Courtney's cells not matching with his gets back to Dr. Hunter.
1: And she sat there thinking about it.
0: She started to piece things together.
1: She thought about patients who weren't having the results that she expected them to.
0: While cancer patients can have very different reactions to chemo, there were patients who didn't seem to be as affected by the drugs.
1: So she decided to have one of the IVs tested.
0: One of the IVs that had come through Courtney's pharmacy.
1: So she called numerous labs to try to find someone to see if they could actually test to see how much of the drug was in there compared to what she ordered.
0: And finally, she gets a lab to do the test.
1: And they sent her the results, and it had a third of the dose that she had ordered. So, of course, she was devastated.
0: A third of the dose? For chemotherapy? Nah, that's not going to work. If I go to a restaurant and my hunger prescribes that I need a full plate of food and the waiter comes out with a third of what I need, nope. Pay for a full suit and you only get the pants, nope. Buy a house and at closing, you only get the bathroom, nope. All of those examples are silly and unacceptable. And in all of those examples, I won't die if I don't get what I need or paid for. So you mean to tell me, a doctor has prescribed the precise amount of potential life-saving medicine you need and somebody who's not my doctor and knows nothing of my health needs is cutting it like tea that's too sweet? Hell no. Mm Mm-mm. And get this, not only does the patient not know, the doctor doesn't know either. And so the doctor is making their decisions on false information. They think their patient isn't responding to something when they just aren't getting enough of it. So this information is what Dr. Hunter brings to her meeting with the FBI agents, along with seven other vials of tests that had come from Courtney.
1: She's just talking about this, that she believes that he's doing this on purpose. Now, we still, you know, we don't know. We don't don't have really good evidence because you never know what something is going to degrade.
0: They have no evidence to suggest Courtney is doing anything wrong, but they have some ideas on how to figure it out.
1: So during our talks, we actually had a conversation that if she were to contact Robert Courtney and see if he would start making the IVs for her again.
0: Dr. Hunter agrees.
1: What we decided to do is what you would call a covert purchase or a sting operation.
0: Dr. Hunter would order some chemo IVs from Courtney, just like she'd done before.
1: She sent the orders. Next morning, he made them and he actually physically delivered them to her office. And in the, her office, in the back room, there were FBI and FDA agents waiting. He brought it, he handed it to the nurse who went to the back, they took custody, they went and flew directly to the FDA lab.
0: They rushed the test. And if these orders also contain less of the drug than promise, well, that's not gonna look very good for Mr. Courtney.
1: So the very next day, we actually got the results of those covert purchases. The highest amount of what she ordered was 28%. And there were some of the IV bags that had merely a trace. Basically, 0%.
0: Basically, 0%. So you mean there are no drugs in there at all? Dude, are you serious? So this guy is just running around basically selling hydration bags.
1: We're like, (laughs) OMG. This has to be done on purpose. There is a crime here.
0: The agents got a warrant to search the pharmacy within a week. But first, they go to speak with Courtney. They tell him that they're looking into a pharmacy in the area that's selling chemo IVs that have been tampered with. And at first, Courtney acts shocked and curious.
1: And then when we told him basically that he's the one, and he and his pharmacy are who we're looking at, then he kind of, you know, got really nervous and wanted to get his attorney involved.
0: The FBI basically shuts down the pharmacy to conduct their search, but they couldn't halt the full operation. I mean, people still gotta get their medications, so they basically set up a mechanism for people to pick up their meds or transfer them. They even created a hotline for people to call in, knowing people would have a lot of questions about the investigation and medicine, rightfully so. But the hotline was also a way for agents to gather more information. People were calling in, wondering if their loved ones were some of the people who received diluted drugs. It was heartbreaking. And in the midst of this, Courtney makes another appearance.
1: In an interview he says that he had been doing this for a few weeks because he had made a million-dollar pledge to his church, and he needed extra money. But he only said he did it for a few times.
0: Whoa, 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 whoa. Now you're bringing the church into this? <laughs> no, nah, I don't think that's going to work. I'm just wondering, how did the idea progress in the first place? Hey, hey, pastor, I'm pledging a million dollars to the church. Ooh, but wait, I don't have a million dollars. I know what I can do. I can sell more cancer drugs if I just add water, or whatever he was adding. Putting people's lives at significant risk for a church fundraiser? The Lord doesn't need a billion dollars that bad, and I hope his church agreed. And the agents, they have what they need to indict, Courtney. Eight counts of tampering with a consumer product, six counts of adulteration of a drug, and six counts of misbranding a drug. The feds move quickly. They realize that this is a question of public safety. And right now, in the early fall of 2001, it's the top case for the FBI. Melissa was part of the team flying to D.C. in September to meet the new FBI director, Robert Mueller, and talk about the case.
1: We're sitting down waiting for him to come down to go over this case and everything just goes crazy. As you well, you know, 9-11 and we start getting uh, all these informations that a plane has hit uh, World Trade Center in New York. So we leave, we go up, we actually watch on a big screen the second plane hit. Then we actually are in a room watching all the planes land.
0: As we all know, this event shocked the world and it was no different for Mel's team. While everyone's attention was on this tragedy happening, the agents, as awful as it felt, needed to continue their job. And right now, the directive was to figure out what to do with someone who was tampering with people's medication.
1: The world goes crazy on that day, but this case continues. It's still a major case, so we have to continue working it.
0: And they still have an important determination to make.
1: Internally, we're talking about Gosh, can we charge him with murder?
0: They discuss it at length with the U.S. Attorney's Office that's prosecuting the case.
1: We bring in a lot of experts to see if we could meet the burden of proof in a criminal case. And we couldn't. We could put up a case, but they're going to put up just as good of information. Because one, we didn't have documentation on individuals exactly what they got and what they didn't get. We knew circumstantially that they died probably because they didn't get their medications, but we could not meet that burden of proof. So during all the discussions, we decided that we should work on a plea agreement.
0: Up until this point, Courtney hadn't admitted to any wrongdoing, and there were people who were pointing this out. He still seemed innocent.
1: I dealt with a lot of healthcare professionals, uh, business professionals, as what we call confidential informants, that if we need to know some expertise, we can go to them. And they were all calling me and they were all saying to me, why are you ruining this man's life and career? He's an innovator. He's gone out and done these wonderful things and created something that took extra work. And you all are basically destroying his life. Well, all I could say to them was, well, you're just going to have to sit back and watch.
0: You see, for the plea agreement to go through, Courtney had to own up to his actions. As part of the plea agreement, he had to
2: admit, they call it an allocation of fault, I believe, but he had to admit to the conduct. He couldn't say it was a mistake. He couldn't try to hide from it or they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have reached the plea deal. So he just admitted he did it.
0: And Courtney knew this would be the best offer he could get given the extent of his crimes. Even if the government couldn't get him on murder, he'd still face charges that could send him to prison for a really long time. So he pleaded guilty.
1: And it's really the first time it's coming out of his mouth. And, of course, the courtroom is full of his friends, colleagues, family, victim families. And the moment he said that, you could actually kind of hear, like, all the air gets sucked out of the room or something. People were just so upset because they just couldn't believe it. But now they knew, you know, he'd done this.
0: People finally understood the extent of Courtney's crimes.
2: When people would come in with prescriptions for the chemotherapy, he would personally fill them and he would dilute them. And instead of giving them the full doses of chemotherapy, he would give the therapeutic dose, the dose the doctor ordered. He would cut it down to anywhere between 10 and 30%
0: of of the recommended dose. And then he'd sell the remaining drug he extracted, which is how he had more chemo drugs to sell than what he was actually purchasing legally. When that happens to somebody, it's like um, an antibiotic,
2: like a, like a Z-Pack, where you have five of them and, and your doctor's always very insistent, make sure you take all of them. Because if you don't, your body becomes resistant to the, to the um,
0: medication. It becomes resistant to you slowly build an immunity to it. And that's what was happening. And Courtney did this to his customers over and over and over again. Not only was he doing it, but he was looking these people in the eye. He was handing them the medication. And he was seeing the progression of getting worse and worse and worse. And that's not the only thing Courtney was doing to make money. He was diluting chemotherapy drugs, but he was also involved in various gray market schemes, basically buying and selling legal drugs through illegal methods or filing prescriptions that didn't exist with insurance companies to recoup the payment. And this had been going on for at least 10 years. You'll hear more about this life-threatening drug dealer after the break. The impact of Courtney's actions was massive. After Courtney accepted the plea, he had to agree to a full debriefing, basically open up his entire office again for the FBI to sort through all of his files. Mel was one of the agents.
1: Once we finished our two weeks with him, we took all of the results and we decided to run it through the database and come up with what doctors do we need to let know that their patients may be affected. It ended up being 72 drugs and he affected approximately 4,200 patients and it ended up being about 98,000 plus orders, prescription orders.
0: And skimming all of those drugs allowed Courtney to amass over 18 million dollars. $18 million coming at the unbelievable cost of people's lives, something that no one could put a value on. All kinds of people
2: died. We had all kinds of clients who they would start off with um, a stage one cervical cancer, which is very treatable. A young girl, stage one cervical cancer. And if she'd received the proper medication, she'd be alive today. But she didn't and it continued to get worse. And she continued to get the diluted medication until eventually it turns
0: into stage four cervical cancer and she dies a very horrible and painful death. Mike ended up representing 178 victims in this case. The toll is a painful one. Many people lost their lives in the 10 plus years Courtney was operating this scheme. What Courtney knew was that with chemo drugs, reactions can change from person to person. And just because someone was receiving chemo, didn't mean that they would survive. So people wouldn't necessarily have any reason to believe their drugs weren't working. It was, and it is, heartbreaking for the entire community. Except Courtney didn't seem too emotional at all.
1: The one thing you could tell is he didn't have any remorse. And as he talked about this, he really thought he would never get caught.
0: While there would be no criminal trial, the judge still needed to sentence Courtney. The government had requested between 17 and a half to 30 years for the 20 felony counts outlined in the plea agreement plus money for restitution but at that point the government had already seized 19 million dollars
1: what i can tell you all of us we would have loved to been able to charge him with murder we really really wanted to but we he could have walked out the door if we couldn't have met the burden of proof so we just didn't want to go down that route we just felt like we needed to get something, and we certainly wanted to get him off the street.
0: The judge sentenced Courtney to the maximum of thirty years. He'd be in prison till twenty twenty seven.
2: It had to be more than just about the money because he had amassed all of this money and he, but he was still doing it. And he was doing it for the smallest dollar amounts in, in, in some cases. And I think that somehow it it brought him joy. It made him feel powerful. It's the only thing I can think of. It wasn't like he was, you know, jetting around the world or were supporting some gambling addiction or habit.
0: There was really no explanation for his behavior. But this wasn't over yet. There was also a civil case.
1: This actually involved a couple of drug manufacturers.
0: For failure to act with urgency, even though they knew Courtney's sales figures were off. One of Mike's clients testified at the trial. I'll never forget a trial when our client
2: who was a local school teacher. Georgia Hayes, when she took the stand and turned and spoke to the jury, she said that what she wanted was for them to be able to order that the pictures of all of his victims be placed on the cell, the ceiling of his cell, so every day it's the first thing he sees when he wakes up and the last thing he sees when he goes to sleep. I mean, it was an extremely
0: emotional trial. The companies ended up paying. So did Courtney's insurance company. It would end up being a $2.2 billion civil judgment. An administrator was set up to distribute money to the victims. And Courtney, he headed off to do his 30 years. That is, until July of 2020, when the U.S. Attorney's Office learned something surprising. Courtney was being released seven years before his sentence was up. He was going to be transferred to a halfway house and then home confinement in Missouri. His case had been identified as a COVID-19 release, and it was a decision the Bureau of Prisons had made without notifying people in Kansas City.
1: Families across Kansas City
2: are stunned that Robert Courtney is being released from prison and allowed home...
0: Courtney had already filed a motion for compassionate release. And get this, due to cancer.
1: Robert made a request to be released to serve the rest of his sentence at home. And he gave two different medical conditions. He had had two heart attacks and he battled cancer, which seems kind of ironic since uh, I'm sure he got better care than some of these patients that he took care of. And the Department of Justice and Bureau of Prisons were going to let him out.
0: Democrat and Republican Missouri lawmakers were like, no, absolutely not. And they ended up writing to the then attorney general, Bill Barr, urging him to reverse their approval of Courtney's early release. Families
1: were outraged and heartbroken, and a lot of them weren't even notified. So they began speaking out, and lawmakers certainly heard them. They began asking questions about this new federal policy and why Robert Courtney. And apparently, all of this pressure
2: worked.
0: And the DOJ complied. Courtney's release was reversed. he still got to do his time. Usually, we conclude with some nuanced words about how a person ended up cheating the way that they did. Was it something in their childhood or the ever-pressing need to get ahead? Not really in this case, and I don't rightly understand why Courtney did what he did. I mean, he knew what he was doing. Was it the money? Well, he didn't spend it on outlandish things. And that $1 million he promised to the church, he actually gave it to him. He seemed to relish in this perception that he was a stand-up, church-going citizen who everyone liked and this perception allowed him to take advantage of people's trust, from the doctors to the nurses and to his clients. But to the victims, this motive, it doesn't matter at all. When it comes to our health, it's one of the most universally vulnerable components of our lives. And when someone that you love is sick, you have to trust other people to do their job, honestly. Courtney did not, and people died. Dr. Hunter, Melissa Osborne and Michael Ketchmark, along with a lot of other people not named here, did their job honestly. And now Courtney is in prison, sick and in need of the very drugs he cheated his clients out of. Hey folks, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Cheat wherever you get it. And please do leave a rating and a review if you like what we're doing. It helps other people discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. Also, if you want to listen to the show without the ads, you can subscribe to Cheat Plus. It's like cheap, but better. It's just 2 dollars a month, or if you're in the UK, £2.49. And you get all of this without having to listen to those annoying commercials. Just go to Apple Podcasts and hit subscribe instead of follow. You can try it for free now. Next week on Cheat. This was
2: a pretty well done scam that only a sociopath could actually pull off because you have to be the type of person that can lie about really hurtful things for the sole purpose of buying something nice for yourself and not feel guilty about
0: it. cheat is written and presented by me alzo slade this episode was produced by Cav Opata with help from julia doyle the executive producers are lizzie jacobs and tom Koenig. the series editor is tom fuller engineering sound design and scoring by martin peralta at output media our production coordinators are jennifer mystery and iker egbatola